Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Commonweal Policy Podcast. You're joined by me, Lewis Akers, a volunteer researcher at Commonweal, and by Head of Policy and Research, Craig DL. Hello. How are you doing today, Craig? I'm doing well. Just enjoyed a, a nice wee week's holiday, uh, stripping wallpaper and redecorating a house. Uh, so I'm now exhausted and ready to go. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a rather exciting week, hasn't it? So you trade the exhaustion of work for the exhaustion of home. <laughs> I find policy research perfectly relaxing. <laughs> you must always have your inner zen when you're in here then. Um, <laughs> so this week we're going to be discussing a little bit about um, constitutions. It's been the uh, big talk of the town today in Scottish politics uh, with the news that um, the Scottish courts have found that suspension of parliament is unlawful. Um, I was wondering if you could give us a quick kind of Bird's eye view, a quick overview of what happened there, Craig. Yeah, right. First thing to say, I'm not the expert here. Um, you want to get the real detail of what's been going on, get onto Twitter, follow folk like Michael Gray, a former common space journalist, now a law student, who's been you know, in at the court taking notes and giving live tweets as they've been yeah. happening. Um, he really knows the details from the kind of Scottish angle. Also follow folk like David Allen Green uh, from the Financial Times, um, very prolific uh, on Twitter, talking again about this from a UK point of view. Uh, they, they really know what's going on. Essentially, though, Boris Johnson, having been told, or having his predecessor been told, don't waste this time with this extension to the, the, the Brexit process, um, has decided to shut down Parliament. <laughs> Just at the time when you know things were starting to happen, um, the Parliament was starting to take back control from the government and starting to force the government to do things. Um, and they weren't necessarily the things that Boris Johnson and his government wanted to do. Now, the opinion of the government is that this is a completely perfectly normal thing. This is just them closing down the parliamentary session so that they can have a new Queen's speech and a new mandate for the next session. Just so happens that this period of shutdown is longer than it's ever been in modern parliamentary history. And it's happened right at that very convenient time if you wanted to completely wipe out a huge swathe of time to actually deal with public policy to deal to deal with the, the Brexit process and to come up with a plan either to accept the deal that has already been agreed or to find some workable alternative to it or whatever. Um, so the accusation is that this shutdown was done deliberately to avoid the parliament taking control away from the government. Um, that when it went to the English courts, uh, they said that this was purely a matter of politics and not law. Therefore, the court had nothing to say on it. But the case has now been taken to the Scottish courts, where they said that this was a matter of law. Scotland has a distinct legal system. It has distinct customs, distinct um, interpretations. It has a different tradition from where these laws come from. And it has decided that this this is actually unlawful. Yeah. Um, so it will now go to the UK Supreme Court, I think on the 17th of September, and we'll get a judgment sometime after that. And, well, from the point of recording here, we don't know what will happen. I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court could decide in favour of the English court system and say that this is just purely a matter of politics. Or it could decide with the Scottish court that this was an unlawful act. 
Um, we don't know the consequences really of either yet or which way the, that judgment will fall. But that, that could be a discussion for future weeks, hopefully, um, once we know a little bit more of the depth and the detail about what's going on, because we're very yeah. much in the, the sort of early days of this decision and what this will mean for the independence movement, what this will mean for Scotland, and ultimately what this means for Boris Johnson, Brexit, yeah. Parliament in the UK, and that whole debate. And I'm sure there's many people down in... England who have been campaigning around a people's vote who are probably cheering this decision on um, and many opposition sort of parties cheering this decision on um, so it is quite interesting we as a Scot- as a country as part of this union we've managed to have that impact on probably discourse this morning um, around this sort of discussion. Well potentially I mean if the, certainly if the Supreme Court comes down in favour of the Scottish judgment then it is interesting back in 2014 we were told Scotland you have to you have to. You can't leave. You have to lead, and now Scotland's kind of taking the lead. Yeah. Um, so either that lead's acceptable or it's not. So we, this is going to have severe political ramifications, no matter which way that decision slides. Yeah, and no, we, we we were discussing this earlier before we recorded the podcast, and it is a. It's going to be a real battle of ideas over the the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a real sort of battle between you know, well, what does take precedence? Is it Scottish law or English law? And yeah. You know, it's it's a, it's a it's going to be a hard sort of wire for someone to balance on anyway. Well, this this is this is a question of UK constitutional law, yeah. and does UK constitutional law abide by the English legal system or the Scottish legal yeah. system, or has it to does it need to apply to both? A kind um, of hybrid, <laughs> or 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 can it apply to both in different ways in different yeah. places? We don't really know. This is something that's going to have to be sorted out, kind of, and this is maybe where we get into you know what we're wanting to talk about in the yeah. podcast this week. What is constitutional law, and why is it important? What is a constitution for a start? We often, I'm sure, we've already got folks shouting at me in the comments saying, "Oh, the UK doesn't have a uh, a written constitution." Not quite true. What it doesn't have is a codified constitution. It doesn't have a single document, the Constitution of the United Kingdom. You know, like other countries, like the US has the US Constitution. Many, most countries have a single constitutional document that lays out their constitution. The UK doesn't. The UK has constitutional law spread over various documents, various aspects of law, as well as customs and traditions and procedures. Um, and these kind of develop over time and change over time and people set new precedents upon them. So it's, a, it's a basically a big melting pot of all these kind of conventions and, and sort of precedents and yeah. all these things rolled into one. I mean, what, what sort of impact does that have on the way that we run our political process? Or, I mean, it, would it matter if we actually took all those and wrote it out? Would it change anything? Well, Or would we be in the same situation as we are now? Very much depends what we write down. Yeah. I remember back in 2014, I think Robin mentioned this on last week's podcast, there were folk in the Better Together campaign who were saying what a wonderful thing the uncoded constitution was because it allowed the UK to be flexible and malleable in ways that codified countries cannot be. Um, Unfortunately, the flip side of that is what happens when people start squeezing the constitution in ways that you don't necessarily want them to. Uh, So... But what would happen if we just took the Constitution as it stands and just moulded it into one codified document? Well, potentially not much. All it would do is take these conventions and it would codify them. Yeah. It would it would make them legal. 
they they wouldn't be so easy to to change if it was convenient or inconvenient. Um, it is possible. I mean, people some some people say that oh, they the, the treat the constitution almost like a panacea that it would fix everything. If only we had a written constitution, none of this mess would yeah. happen. No, if we had a codified constitution that explicitly allowed this mess to happen, <laughs> then this mess would happen. <laughs> it's it's a badly written constitution is is is. Just as bad as not having one. We're just going through a more disorganised way of having this mess rather than an organised, codified way of having this mess, basically. Precisely, yeah. yes. Um, I suppose that brings us on to the sort of... We've got... Commonweal's done a lot of work in a lot of different areas, and one of those areas was, you know, back in 2018, the White Paper Project yep. and um, Dr. Elliot Bulmer's um, Foundations for Freedom is Paper. Really, really interesting guy. He knows his stuff. And he's, he wrote this paper on... I suppose the process for writing a constitution, what is a constitution, is kind of given us a, a draft or template constitution, yep. very basic, or I say very ba- basic for a constitution, not basic in any other sense. But, I would say boilerplate rather than basic. Well, yeah. This paper, Foundations for Freedom, I'll put a link in the description. Yeah, yeah you're quite right. It goes through the principles of, of what a constitution is there for. Um, Bilmer's actually said things that like a constitution, constitution is a bit like a... A, a political sewer system <laughs> in that it allows things to flow and you only you really should only notice it when things back up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that constitution also gives you a mechanism for giving things a good flush. Um, it gives you ideas of what should be in a constitution and what should not be. You don't necessarily want to overload your constitution with policy positions, for instance, because those are, those are the things you might want to change as the times and environments change. It gives an example of how we write a constitution. We'll maybe talk about that a wee bit later, um, and in which we go through a process of potentially bringing it to the people and having a, con- a citizens' assembly. And then, yes, he has a, a boilerplate constitution at the end, drawn from many constitutions around the world, yeah. uh, as well as drawing from the principles that, that Elliot outlines in the paper. It's not a constitution that I'm sure anyone would agree with everything in it. Um, it's not a constitution that I hope you would disagree with in entirety. It is something that is intended there to be a living and, and discussable document that could potentially become the constitution of an independent Scotland or at least give you an idea of what one would look like. Yep. So, I mean, in, in that sort of sense, what sort of, what sort of types of changes are there to constitutions? Because... We had a little bit of a discussion about this earlier that there's sort of different types of changes that you can make to constitutions. Is is there? Could you give us some examples of those types of changes and what those would look like and where it's been done elsewhere? Yeah. So, well, constitutions shouldn't be as easily easy to change as your normal legislation. They okay. should have a bit of rigidity to it. They are. I mean, a constitution fundamentally. Maybe we should talk about the, what is a constitution. Well, yeah, that's, I've completely yeah. skipped that. <laughs> really, the, con- the, 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 the constitution defines your country. Yeah. It defines who is the legislative branch of your country, who makes the laws and how do they do it, who is the executive branch of your country, who enacts the policies and decides the policies, who is the judicial ban- branch of your country, who enforces the laws to make sure the policies abide by the legislation and, and provide the mutual framework of checks and balances. Where are your government departments? Do you have a central bank? Who is it? How are they governed? I mean, there's even things like if if, if you want to really go into it, what is your legal currency? 
what principles do you uphold? Do you uphold the um, various principles on human rights or equality? Um, do you enshrine environment in your constitution? Do you point to other treaties? Do you say, well, our country adheres to the European Charter on Human Rights, for instance, or some other international treaty? And do you enshrine that in your constitution? Um, so, yeah, they, they can become kind of lionized documents and some countries do really respect and hold up their constitution, put it on a pedestal. And that's because they are very foundational documents. They define what your country is literally and metaphorically. You start making changes to them and they do change the character of your country. Um, so, yeah, if we want to go from there into how do you change a constitution once you have one? Let's imagine that we have an independent Scotland, we have a written codified constitution, and we have broadly the same political makeup as we have right now. Okay. So Commonweal has policies like we could maybe have an upper house made up of a citizens' assembly and citizens' jury, and we've got other plans on changing local democracy and whatnot. But let's imagine none of that's happened yet. We have more or less just the Scottish politics as it is now. First, you would pro and, and say there's a change that comes up this uh, in the constitution. You'd probably first have the presiding officer make a make a a determination on how important that change is. So you could have a change that is essentially negligible. I mean, it might be as simple as a typo. These things do happen. <laughs> they they do happen. Um, it could be a misplaced comma or apostrophe in the wrong place. I mean, those are slightly more worrying than a typo. Legal, some, you know, legal cases have happened where decisions have, have decided on where the apostrophe yeah. was. Um, it could be a government department has changed its name. So think to when the Scottish government or the Scottish executive became the Scottish government. Um, I, I, Lewis was chiding me earlier on when I came up with this, this example. Um, the the Constitution of Croatia. <laughs> yes, I am this geeky. Very no. obscure. <laughs> the Constitution of... Not if you're Croatian. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the Constitution of Croatia has an article in it which said, used to say the Central Bank of Croatia was the National Bank of Croatia. The National Bank of Croatia changed its name to the Croatian National Bank. Now... That was just a name change. The, the, the central bank is still the same. It's still doing the same job. Yeah. All the legal stuff is still pointing in the same direction. Really just a name change. So if something's really minor like that, the presiding officer could say, right, first minister, just executive order, sign off on it. Fine, done. If it's a slightly more major change, something that maybe one of the international treaties that we've pointed to has changed and it, ha it causes some ripple effect uh, through our le legal system and, you know, things just need a bit of a tidy up. Or maybe you've passed some amendments previously and, and the American system, an amendment to the Constitution is just held as a separate amendment yeah. to the Constitution. In some other countries, what they'll do is they'll take amendments and then put them into the actual main body of the text okay. and they'll have what's known as a consolidated text. So it's again just tidying everything up and 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 just fixing a few wee issues here and there. You could do that just as a majority thing in Parliament. Majority vote in Parliament, it's not changing all that much. Um but it's a bit more significant than just changing a name. Yes. 
Now, a major change, this is what we talk about when we're talking changes to the Constitution. This could be adding an article or deleting an article or making a fundamental change, changing your head of state, changing your currency, changing the way your your judiciary works, you know, adding another high court or something big like that. This is where you get into the territory that constitutions really should be difficult to change. So what you probably want is a supermajority in Parliament. This could be, say, 66%. You need two-thirds majority in Parliament. Which is quite normal around the world. That's quite normal. Decisions, yeah. 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 They, they sometimes set the bar at different percentages, but two-thirds is a decent baseline yeah. for a first guess at this kind of thing. Under a proportional system, it's very unlikely that a party will ha- a single party will have two-thirds majority in the Parliament. Therefore, a single party can't really come into power and just tear up the constitution and yeah. declare themselves dictator for life. So you need that cross-party consensus. That's the first hurdle to get a constitutional amendment through. It has to be popular enough that it can attract white that, that consensus in the parliament. If you really want to make this secure, you might also want a referendum. Some countries do this. Ireland, for instance, yeah. has a referendum whenever it wants to make big constitutional changes. You might want to put that change out to... Con- to citizens' assemblies to help write the change or to help explain how this change works. So we've talked about this uh, previously with respect to the the currency position, the currency campaign. The Growth Commission, current SNP policy, wants to sterlingise and at some point after certain tests have been met to transition to a Scottish currency. I would argue that that's a big enough change that you might want in your constitution to point to, you know, the legal tender of Scotland is whatever, sterling, Scottish currency. The central bank of Scotland is, yeah. it could be the Bank of England if it's, a, if it's a, a, a currency union. It could be a Scottish Monetary Institute if it's sterlingisation. That might need to change if you then want to launch your own currency and set up a central bank. That could be a major change. That could be something that needs two-thirds majority in the parliament and a referendum. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I I actively encourage that kind of process for a major change like that. But it is one that could be used as a criticism against the the kind of Growth Commission report and its recommendations because Commonweal obviously take that much more future-neutral approach to these questions that mean that we we start off um, and with all the levers of power being open, accessible to whatever government of that day to use and... I suppose it means that less time is taken up. Yeah, what I'm saying is if we go down the sterlingisation route and then find ourselves having to get into a constitutional wrangle to change our currency, I'm not necessarily saying the constitutional wrangle is a bad thing at that point, but it might take time. It might mean that transitioning to a Scottish currency takes several years longer than you want it to. Rather um, than taking a future-neutral approach, which would... Well, the Commonwealth approach in currency is that we have our own currency yeah. from day one, but we set it up in a way that you could you could peg it to sterling, yeah. or you could float it, or you could find some other way of, of managing it that is quite easy to change, depending on the circumstances. So it allows you to have those rapid policy decisions. But in, in terms of sort of constitutions, I mean, the American ex- the American example with, uh, I suppose, the sort of Second Amendment, um, the right to bear arms, is very much, some people would argue, uh, part of that constitution, which is very much 
part of our historical context and yeah. isn't relative, relevant to today. But there's very much a gridlock or a deadlock or a stalemate in the American debate about gun laws and how they sort of change that amendment because it is so enshrined in people's idea of what it means to be American or the American constitution. I mean, is there a, is there a problem with constitutions from that sense? And that the, the things, as you said earlier, they can become, you know, put up on a pedestal a bit. Yeah, I mean, this is actually a really good example of, of a policy that has made it into the constitution. I mean, at one point, I'm sure the the... America really did need a well-regulated militia, and therefore the the right to bear arms was important. Yeah. It no longer needs a well-regulated militia for its internal defence. So, you know, does that right to bear arms, is that relevant now? Yeah. Um, but, as you say, this is an example of a, a part of the Constitution that is has become part of the foundational identity of the country for... For, for certain people uh, on both sides of the debate you know the for people who who want to keep that there that right to bear arms is a fundamental piece of their identity and what they see as the American identity whereas people who want to get rid of it so you know, there's the argument that that would t- create that would turn America into the country that they want to see yep. it become so you can see how the identity is wrapped up in all that um, you can also see the dangers of overloading your, con- your constitution with policy rather than principles. It's something that you that Elliot's paper really does guard against. Uh, you know, that's an argument maybe for quite a slimline constitution, just basically pointing to here are here are the government departments and who they report to. Yeah, I mean, just to, I suppose to finish on a quite a nice kind of positive note. I mean, Commonweal's um, process for how we would come up with a constitution is outlined in this paper and in other things that we've discussed is really quite empowering. It's that mm. same sort of well, that same sort of idea as Iceland attempted with the kind of citizens' assembly, that really active process that gets people involved. How would that look um, in practice? Yeah, so Iceland, yeah, they, they went out to a, con- a citizens' assembly to try and write a constitution. In the end, it didn't didn't lead to an actual written constitution uh, produced from this system. Uh, so Scotland has that opportunity of being a new country in the, the 21st pioneers. century, the pioneers of a new approach to constitutional law and create a constitution that's you know for the future, for the 21st century. Um, the the procedure is in the, the the paper. It's also repeated in our paper in our book, How to Start a New Country, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's essentially going out to the people, discussing the principles, dis- getting the experts around the table with to to help inform people because yeah. this is complicated stuff, um, and and bringing people along with the process so that people understand what's in the constitution, what it means, and hopefully getting that endorsement from folk. And this is this is important stuff. It is really tricky stuff. I'll give you a good example. Right. Imagine we're creating that constitution for Scotland. Let's start at line one. What do we call our country? Really think about that. What do we call what is the official name of our country once we vote for independence? Now pre seventeen oh seven our country was called the Kingdom of Scotland. And I've talked about this in things like the debt and asset um, paper and in previous podcasts. If you want to look at the def- the difference between a new and continuing state, but the Kingdom of Scotland assumes that we'll ha- be a monarchy. We'll have a monarchy. Maybe we'll take on the, the existing monarchy or a new one. That's another policy debate. <laughs> but if you're a Republican, 
if you want a republic, uh, 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 a more democratic system than a monarchy, you might not be happy with the Kingdom of Scotland. However, if we want to go for the Republic of Scotland, then it's the same problem in reverse. You may be disinclining folk who are quite keen on the monarchy to come along with you. A third option could be the option taken by Canada, by Ireland. The official name of Ireland isn't the Republic of Ireland. We, we only use that to distinguish it from Northern Ireland. The official name of Ireland is Ireland. Yeah. The official name of Canada is Canada. So maybe a future neutral approach for an independent Scotland would be the official name of Scotland should just be Scotland. That's a discussion we have to have as a nation at these citizens' assemblies. And that's line one of the Constitution. There's another 20 pages to go. And I mean, we had this discussion earlier, and I've not given this much thought, but it was a very, very much a mic drop moment from you in the office (laughs) where you find yourself going, the immensity and the scale of this is amazing and is massive. And actually, the citizens, although it might not seem like the solution to a lot of people, the solution is citizens' assemblies. It gets everybody around the table yeah. discussing these ideas. It empowers people. It makes it gives people a buy-in to you know, their own country and their own country's future. And I suppose shapes the people as well as the people shaping the constitution exactly really, which is and also you know instead of governments imposing politics down on people yep. we have people imposing politics and constitutions on governments and politicians which is really and, me, seems to me the, to be the right order of yeah, things. yeah it's the right order of things but in this the world that we live in just now it would be very topsy-turvy to do that <laughs> yeah. but the best type of topsy-turvy <laughs> But I think that's probably quite a nice way to end the podcast on that really yeah. positive note. If you've really enjoyed this podcast and you've enjoyed the other podcasts we've made together, um, then you can contribute to Common Week and become a donor every month for as much as five, uh, for as little as five pounds or as much as a hundred pound. Uh, there'll be a donate button all on the Common Wheel website, and we'll have a donation link on the um, podcast itself. So. If you want to see us continue this work on constitutions, the Green New Deal project that we've come out with, and much, much more, please contribute so we can continue doing this fantastic work. And on that note, as always, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.